Today, we have the pleasure of speaking to Sam Burns, founder of Mill Street Research. Sam, welcome to Forward Guidance. Hey, thanks, Jack. Appreciate you having me on. We're glad you're here, Sam, because you not only analyze the macro, you analyze earnings and specifically what analysts are tracking for earnings. You know, 2020 and to some degree 2021 was a year when it was a lot about narratives. It was fueled by narratives and liquidity. But right now we're sort of in the show me phase in terms of assets. It's it's like you make money, uh, we'll, we'll continue to buy your stock. But if you don't, as we see today on the 6th of January, profitless tech companies, uh, you know, richly valued companies that don't make profit, if at all, any revenue, are being punished quite severely. So I'm really glad to have you here. But your earnings forecast model, it's pretty complicated. So before we get into that, let's just zoom out and talk about the macro. How are you weighing the, the risks and reward in this uh, market? I know you look at things like momentum, credit risk, real yields, uh, metal prices, Fed expectations. How are you sort of weighing all of that in, in terms of evaluating the opportunities and risks that lie, lie in stocks? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we, we often start with a top-down view uh, before we go trying to dig into to individual uh, industries and, and stocks, and uh, and particularly you know nowadays that's very important. Um, the the primary uh, timing tool I use for uh, kind of a three to six month view on on equities and really risk assets in general, kind of the risk on risk off trade. Um, has been uh, what we ought to call a global equity risk model. And it's got uh, eight indicators like the ones you described uh, that are based on equity returns, uh, various forms, volatility, price momentum, things like that. And also cross asset things like uh, credit spreads, uh, metals prices, uh, you know, uh, Fed expectations, the, the treasury market. Um, all those things kind of go into it to describe both the backdrop and the actual market behavior uh, that we're seeing. And those those indicators uh, I found have, you know, a good uh, track record for helping gauge risk and reward over the next, you know, few months. And right now they've, they've kind of been backing off from being having been very, very bullish from kind of uh, probably August, September of 2020 all the way through just recently, uh, they were in their, their maximum bullish reading. Uh, and they've now kind of pulled back to sort of a moderately bullish reading um, on that overall kind of composite model that I use. And that's really consistent with the fact that we're now getting close to the point where the Fed is going to be probably raising rates this year. Um, so it's now, you know, come to come to that point uh, where all, a lot of the monetary stimulus is starting to kind of stop being provided, maybe starting to take it away a little bit. And um, the uh, uh, price momentum and the kind of the speculative enthusiasm that was so prominent in you know uh, late 2020 and much of 2021 is also fading, um, partly because the liquidity is being withdrawn and partly because you know those things just only go on for so long. Uh, so those those kind of things are kind of early signs that we're moving kind of early stage to sort of mid stage in the market cycle, and on that's also true of of the economic cycle. I think the backdrop is still favorable. You know, bonds and real interest rates are still very low. They don't offer a lot of competition for equities and risk assets. Um, the economy is still growing uh, in the U.S. and globally. Our earnings are still growing. So all that kind of fundamental backdrop is still fairly good, but. The, uh, the real strong tailwinds we've had are starting to kind of moderate and are now more balanced between kind of headwinds and tailwinds, I would say. And when we see this model, uh, such as Fed expectations, is at 6%. What does that mean? So that basically means that um, relative to the last few years, uh, if you look at kind of what market expectations for uh, Fed policy are, and so here we're just looking at the comparison between what the two-year Treasury yield is uh, is yielding versus what Fed funds are, or kind of the short-term three-month yield. Uh, that gives you a, a feel for where the market expects the Fed to be in a year or two. 
And that's that's moved. The two-year yields have moved up a lot. They're up around 70 some odd basis points now, um, and that tells you that there's there's multiple rate hikes that are being priced in now that were not the case, um, you know, a few months ago or, or a year ago. And so that's telling you that having been for several years having the Fed, you know, looking at either lowering rates or keeping them at zero, we're now to the phase where they're starting to raise rates. And historically, that's been something of a tailwind, or sorry, a headwind for uh, equities and risk assets in general. Uh, it's not a, it's not a uh, necessarily causing a bear market by itself, but it tells you that you've, you've lost some of that. Uh, uh, so basically, that 6% just means that we're at the 6th percentile of the historical range for that indicator. So all these indicators that, that I look at are kind of percentile scored so that, you know, zero is worst and 100 is best. And so having been at, you know, very high readings for a long time, uh, a lot of Fed support, we're now kind of moved to the other side saying the Fed is withdrawing support. And that's that's a net negative for, for equities. How hot do you think the economy will be in, in 2022? Do you think we'll see a continued boom in demand for durable goods? alongside a, a renewed vigor in services spending? Or you know, do, do, the, do the bears have a, have a point that the bloom is sort of off the rose for 2022? I think that the, the overall economic growth for 2022 will generally be pretty good. Um, I think the forecasts now are for three and a half, four percent real growth. And then, you know, three to four percent inflation gets you to some sort of seven to eight percent nominal uh, GDP growth. Um, I think that that could happen. Um, and that would be that would be in line with actually current bottom-up analyst forecast for revenues and for earnings for the S&P 500. The kind of 7% revenue growth and 8 or 9% earnings growth is kind of what the current forecasts are. Um, so uh, analysts are not expecting profit margins for corporate America to expand dramatically further from where they already are. They're already quite high. Um, so in terms of, you know, top-line kind of GDP and, and revenue growth, I think it'll be pretty good. Some of that will be inflation, uh, you know, prices going up, uh, and some of it will be real growth. I think the real growth will be relatively solid uh, for those reasons that I, that I mentioned. Um, I think that, you know, the risks are either Fed over-tightening um, or, uh, you know, fiscal policy retrenchment, some kind of uh, limitation on fiscal activity. Um, or obviously, if there's another COVID wave that, that really retrenches things again, uh, you know, certainly, uh, we hope that I'll hope that uh, doesn't happen. Uh, but the fact that, you know, that it looks like we may, the Omicron wave may, you know, kind of uh, move along uh, by at least, you know, March, maybe uh, by the end of the first quarter. And that if, if things do improve the rest of the year, uh, then that sort of forecast for uh, economic activity, you know, could could hold up or even improve a bit. Um, so I, th I think I think the economy and the and earnings will do fairly well. I think there is some upside if the supply chain and uh, kind of inflationary pressures get worked out a bit, and there's no no big new COVID wave, and and, and policy is is you know reasonable and supportive. Even with a couple of three rate rate hikes, I think you could get a decent economy, uh, and therefore there's there's no reason to be uh, heavily bearish. Um, valuations are kind of high for equities on a historical basis, but not uh, relative to bonds certainly, and not um, on a current year earnings basis. So I think there's not much alternative to equities still. Um, so I don't know if you sold all your stocks, what would you do with it? Um, it's still, still an open question. Buy Bitcoin. Come on. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, whole other risk category there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Sam, what, uh, what? So that that bullish view, relatively bullish, moderately bullish view you just laid out. You you expect robust economic growth. What would it take, Sam? What would you have to see, whether in earnings revisions or in the macro, in the data, in the stock, in the price action? 
for you to change your mind? So I think the downside uh, would be if um, kind of input costs and wage costs, things like that, go up enough to really dent profit margins. Um, that they, if, if companies can't raise their, uh, you know, selling prices fast enough to compensate for uh, wage and input cost growth, um, then that could be the thing that hurts margins and therefore earnings because you know margins are, are quite high. Now a lot of that is concentrated in the you know in the tech sector, but uh, a lot of other sectors still uh, have uh, relatively high profit margins compared to history. Um, you know that's certainly a risk. Um, you know China, you know is certainly a risk. You know it's been rel- you know, kind of weak. Um, but if it really started to see, uh, you know, a, a big downdraft, either because of, you know, property speculation or, uh, you know, tightening in, of economic policy or whatever, that something got a little, uh, got weaker than expected there, um, that could be a drag on overall economic growth and certainly supply chain issues, things like that could, you know, can emanate from, from China. Um, and then again, you know, policy risk, if it, you know, looks like that uh, fiscal policy will suddenly become much more uh, restrictive and contractionary. Uh, if the Fed decides to respond to inflation much more aggressively and tightens, uh, you know, too much, um, that would be a, a downside risk as well. And that's, those are typically th- those are things that have happened in in past cycles for sure. Um, in terms of market sentiment, um, you know, people are pretty optimistic and bullish here. Um, I think there is some risk that people get more cautious, um, but you know, that would need a catalyst. I think. Uh, I, th- I think there would be some something that would have to change in the macro standpoint to, to make that happen. I don't think it would just going to happen all by itself necessarily. Um, you know, except I, I wouldn't recommend going back into the really volatile small cap, you know, profitless growth companies. Um, I don't think they're going to suddenly have a big resurgence. Uh, but I think overall equities um, can you know can hold up. I think earnings will, will do relatively well. And so as long as there's that kind of underlying fundamental support and there's not a, a great alternative. From from fixed income or other assets, then I think uh, you know that equities and risk assets will, will do okay. But those are the downside risks: is policy mistake, uh, you know, China or or uh, profit margin squeeze. But by the way, those profitless uh, small cap growth names—they're not almost by definition not a huge part of the S and P 500. So I can see those right. stocks doing very poorly on S and P 500 holding up. Sam, you, you mentioned the Federal Reserve raising rates. What? type of stocks is the Fed hiking rates a greater threat to cyclical small cap value companies or cyclical or, or speculative you know, small cap growth companies? Yeah, I would say that the a lot of the sort of cyclical companies, the industrials, consumer, um, you know, materials, commodities type stocks, most of those can withstand rate hikes by the Fed, uh, at least up to a point, you know, going from zero to 75 or 100 basis points generally won't hurt those kind of stocks if the economy isn't, I mean, if the reason the Fed is, Fed is raising rates is that the economy is strong. If there's strong economic growth, then small moves and short-term rates won't hurt those kind of cyclical names much. Um, what we've seen recently is people uh, responding to uh, the, the, the sort of long-duration stocks, those stocks where their earnings are far in the future, they don't have current earnings or very little current earnings, and therefore the uh, kind of the, the, the trend in long-term interest rates uh, is going to be a concern. Um, in terms of the kind of discounted cash flow type analysis that people do where uh, uh, a movement in, in, in the long-term interest rate uh, affects how you value uh, stocks where the earnings are, are, are in the distant future. You know, I think that effect in reality is probably overrated. Um, if the 10-year Treasury yields 2% instead of 1.5%, you know, a, 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 growth, a stock that's growing at 20% isn't going to matter much. 
Um, it's, it's the change in the expected growth rate that matters. So if you thought a stock was going to grow at 20% and now it's going to grow at 15 or 10, the stock's going to go down, whether interest rates, you know, move 50 basis points or not. Um, I think that's the question is, is as we, uh, you know, get to the point where uh, people are going to be, you know, a little more uh, demanding about whether the companies can actually make their forecasts, you know, or kind of, you know, grow into their valuations, uh, the ones that can't are the ones that are now and maybe in the future are going to be uh, the weakest areas. Um, and so I think that's the, the, you know, the real risk is that those stocks that have really high expectations built into them, you know, have to come back to earth. Uh, the, the traditional cyclical names that have low PEs and, you know, don't have really elevated expectations, you know, they can withstand higher rates. Um, they aren't dependent on that. They're, they're more dependent on the economy. The other ones are more dependent on kind of their own secular growth story and they can't all, you know, they can't all win kind of thing. And so, um, I think, uh, there it's more just a question of the growth expectations and how they change. Mm, yeah. Um, I, I just a point on the, the discount rate and, and long duration stocks. I think it can be confusing because on days where long-term bonds sell off hard and yield spike, those tend to be days on which the NASDAQ 100 sells off hard as well. So I think on an intraday basis or a one-day basis, one-day return basis, they're very correlated. But you're saying that on a longer term basis, the fact that the yield is at 2% versus 1.5% doesn't affect the long-term return potential, but 1.5% going to 1.6% in one day, that affects QQQ in one day. But whether it's at one5 or 2 in terms of absolute level, not that big of a deal. Exactly. You know, and definitely true that on a day-to-day -day basis, uh, you know, the, the large cap, the long-term, the growth stocks do very much respond to uh, movements in interest rates. If there's a big move in bond yields, uh, then the you know the the long duration stocks tend to tend to lag, and it's almost a mechanical thing that traders do uh, in the short run. Yeah, so I'm very much talking about kind of the longer term, you know, prospects for those companies and their valuations is probably less tied to you know the level of interest rates when rates are generally very low um, than people kind of then then you would assume if you just extrapolate from those day to day moves. So uh, so I think if you're holding for six months or a year. You know, it doesn't matter as much, or certainly for you know five years. Uh, but day to day, on a tactical basis, uh, you know, rate movements and, and and those kind of rotations between growth and and cyclical value are are, are very much a, a real thing. And Sam, what are you seeing when you look at what's doing well in the equity markets with regards to style and factors? You know, if you look back over the past two years, you can put a, a particular uh, periods of time in distinct chapters. Uh, from March 2020 to, let's say, August, mega cap growth was doing really well. High beta cyclicals were not doing well at all. That reversed in November going through March when risky cyclical stocks rallied alongside speculative growth names. And uh, that sort of reversed again going from March to December. Now it seems like we could be at the precipice of a new market regime where those speculative growth names are really taking it on the chin. You look at a, a poster child for those uh, very disruptive growth companies uh, in the ETF ARKK, and you're seeing some pretty momentous losses. What are you seeing? Uh, you, you know, what does the dispersion of the factors in the equity market tell you about where we are in the regime, and and you know what what's coming down the pike? Yeah, that's right. I think we, we've we followed. Um... 
in some ways uh, a, a typical market cycle, but but compressed in a lot of ways, or, or, or you know the amplitude has been dialed up by the fact that the uh, COVID itself and then the policy response to it were so historically extreme. Uh, you know, the Fed tends to cut, you know, when things get, get, get weak in the economy, but it, it was much more aggressive with its bond buying and, uh, and, and even expanded its powers, as you remember, in 2020, to be able to not only buy treasuries and mortgage bonds, but to buy uh, corporate bonds and junk bonds even, which it never had before. Uh, and that, I think, kind of changed the landscape and produced a lot of that, um, you know, willingness to buy speculative assets, even in conditions that were very uncertain at the time. Um, and then you had the massive fiscal stimulus, which is much bigger than anything we'd seen, at least since World War II, really. Um, all of that combined, you know, produced this extraordinary move in both the economy and in, in, in markets. Um, now those have been sort of pulled back some, naturally. Uh, you can't keep that up forever. And, that, and now we're following kind of the, the, the same cycle where the, the really uh, speculative uh, kind of, you know, most volatile stocks do well early on, and they did. Um, they've peaked and have now uh, fallen back. Um, and so some more of the kind of stable growth and uh, some of the cyclical companies that benefit from a strong economy, um, but can also withstand somewhat higher rates and don't depend on that kind of aggressive liquidity provision are the ones that are now kind of taking over the leadership. Uh, so I think the key is that the economy and the earnings are still there. They're still growing, just not at such a, you know, uh, an extraordinary pace. And um, investors are still wanting to own equities in general. They're not pulling out of stocks. They're just rotating from the riskiest stocks to kind of more, you know, moderate risk stocks. They're not really piling into really low risk defensive stocks yet. Um, and they're not getting out of uh, high yield credit to a large degree. Um, and so it's really just those isolated pockets that really, really just got overvalued and kind of got, went too far through, yeah, probably March or so this year and have now had to, you know, had to correct that you're really seeing uh, a lot of the weakness. The overall market, you know, the S&P 500, most of the indexes are still at or close to their highs. Um, and that's typical of a, a rotating market, not a uh, overall weak or bear market. What about value versus growth? It, it seems like the, oh, the high beta risk assets are going to go down, but the what what are risk assets? You know, a lot of people think about cyclical value stocks, like let's say a copper miner, a steel producer, as a pretty risky uh, a risky speculative stock because it needs the economy to do well for the stock to do well. Unlike Apple, let's say, unlike a safe stock, a, a consumer staple like Coca Cola. You know, no matter how if you like uh, Coca Cola, doesn't matter how the economy is doing, you're, you're going to buy Coca Cola. You're you're, you're going to buy toilet paper. You're going to buy Kleenex and the like. Um, but but what what about specifically the growth stocks versus value? Because we're in this period of a risk off period, you know, over the next next six months. But the cyclical stocks are doing very well. In fact, this week, just, you know, year to date on January as of January sixth, energy companies are up like seven percent, and ARKK, the, the growth names, are down something like like ten percent. Do you think that will continue, or is that just sort of a a, a unique factor of the first week of, of 2020-22? Well, I think there is certainly a, some uh, rotation or kind of portfolio repositioning that goes on around the end of the year and the beginning of the year. And so whatever people came into the year, you know, heavily overweight, sometimes they'll look to, you know, to scale back. So the, the selling and technology that had done very well in October, November, December on a relative basis, you know, they're pulling back from some of that and rotating into the areas um, you know, like value and energy, and also the fact that, that energy uh, prices, the crude oil prices and things like that, have held up pretty well, even though there's been signs of growing output 
uh, both in the U.S. and and from OPEC. So I think energy in particular has a certain amount of tailwind to it to it uh, from its underlying you know commodity. Um, that's true for for other commodities as well in certain areas uh, within the material sector and things like that. So they still have a strong economy behind them, and they still have the uh, kind of supply demand imbalance that helps them uh, for a while. Uh, so that's why we're you know we're still seeing you know upward revisions in energy stock uh, earnings and things like that. Um, but in terms of the overall kind of style rotation, it's been very mixed between you know oscillating between growth and value, as long as you're looking at kind of the major large cap growth and value. When you get down into the smaller cap names, uh, like those archetype names you mentioned, those kind of are are are, are kind of a, a, a bucket under themselves in the sense that they don't um, uh, have the yeah, kind of the underlying fundamentals to drive them. Uh, the same way that come a lot of the large companies do, and rely on uh, liquidity and sentiment primarily to to drive them, and that's what's really been been changing. So um, among the kind of large cap, uh, you know, index drivers, I would say uh, it's been a very much kind of a back and forth rotation uh, between you know growth and value, um, and you know, cyclicals and and uh, and kind of non cyclicals. Uh, but then the, among the more illiquid names, uh, you're just you're starting to see some of those big holders having to get out. And you know redemptions and some of that kind of more tactical portfolio level uh, activity going on. I think that's what you're seeing there um, is more more of that um, kind of going on under the surface among the smaller names. And how do you think the value factor will perform over the next three, six, twelve months? And then the same for size and quality and beta. Right. So I think value has been doing relatively well overall, and I think will probably hold up. Uh, I think you know energy. Uh, and financials are the two big you know, kind of weights in, in that area. Um, I, I think you know, financials are probably um, facing a, a mixed set of you know, headwinds and tailwinds. Energy's probably got some, some decent tailwinds for now. I think with energy, something like that, you know, the, the issue is more right now things look fairly good. Oil prices and natural gas prices are high, uh, and they've got demand coming back as people kind of you know, recover from COVID. But on the long-term basis, on a five or ten-year basis, a lot of people are figuring that you know uh, demand for fossil fuels is, is just going to be on a sort of a continued downtrend, and maybe they don't want to make big long-term investments uh, in those kinds of things on, on a structural basis. Um, whereas you know growth stocks, uh, technology, uh, communication services, some healthcare, you know those are probably going to have be long-term winners. But a lot of them are expensive; they've had big runs. Um, some of them are so big, you, you wonder if they can get much bigger. Or if they'll face, uh, you know, government scrutiny, antitrust, things like that. So I think those are kind of the the big picture, you know, things that are balancing them out to some degree. But I think there's still a lot of money around in the system that, that, that needs somewhere to go, and fixed income is very unattractive still. So it's going to rotate amongst the areas within the equity market back and forth, depending on the day-to-day, week-to-week economic data and uh, uh, you know, and kind of market sentiment. And I think uh, as long as uh, fiscal policy and monetary policy are um, at least relatively supportive, they don't become too tight too quickly, uh, a policy mistake, uh, then I think the, the market and the economy will hold up this year. And I think uh, things like value that depend on the economy can, uh, can hold up as well. Mm-hmm. So that's value. What about size? You know, do you think Apple is going to outperform some you know, $600 million stock that we've never heard of? I do think that large caps are probably the place to be uh, for, for, for this year. Um, that model I mentioned uh, to, to you earlier when we were talking, uh, my cyclical model on uh, small cap, large cap allocation has moved from kind of early cycle to kind of mid-cycle uh, type indicators. Um, you can't really say, if you look at most of the, you know, the market or the economy, uh, economic data, that we're at near a trough, a kind of a low point in the market or the economy. We're definitely 
know, the markets are near highs, credit spreads are very low, um, you know, the GDP growth has recovered. Um, all those kind of traditional indicators of, of, of growth in the economy are, are far from where they would be coming out of, a, of an economic low and are much closer to levels you'd see uh, near an economic high. That doesn't mean they're going to go down. That just means that uh, that kind of early stage has now likely passed. And we're kind of in the mid-cycle stage um, where you tend not to get paid for the risk of small caps as well. Uh, small caps are almost always riskier than large caps and are especially so now that they're more volatile. And so you need to be expecting a premium to be a, to will, willing to own them, to, to take on that extra extra risk. I don't think you'll probably get paid for that risk uh, on average, uh, you know, going forward. I, I think just kind of the best times for them have, have faded. There'll always be some small caps to buy, of course, but I think you're, you're going to be better off in the larger names uh, overall. Mm. And I, I read in your report that, small caps, you know, that is small stocks that have a small market capitalization, they did well in 2021, not because they were small caps necessarily, but because they were more volatile. It, because it was a risk on thing, the more risk you took, the uh, greater your reward. How do you think that the more volatile stocks will will trade in 2022? So we've seen a little bit of a preview over the past three days. Right. And that's actually been going on for uh, a few months now, is that uh, the most volatile stocks, uh, meaning just volatility for volatility's sake, have been lagging. Uh, and that's one of the things that shows that, you know, the risk appetite in general, that's kind of a signal that people are not so quite so willing to just take on risk for the sake of risk as they were, you know, in, in late 2020 and most of 2021, uh, or at least the first half of 2021. Um, and so that tells you um, that there's a little bit of a, of a, of a pullback in risk appetite and that, that, that volatility per se, is not being rewarded anymore and probably won't be um, going forward. Because again, that's very sensitive to liquidity conditions and sentiment. And it's hard to say that sentiment's going to get a whole lot more bullish than it already is. And liquidity is probably not going to improve dramatically from where it is. Uh, it could get worse if the Fed decides to tighten a little faster or things like that. So those things that are very sensitive to liquidity um, are probably not going to do well even and, and you know already aren't doing well and probably will continue to do so for a while longer. Now, you know other forms of risk in the sense of uh, cyclical risk or, or kind of beta itself, meaning sensitivity to the market, um, is a little bit different. That's actually been doing relatively well. So the big cap stocks, you know Apple and things like that, that are closely tied to the indexes and they you know, attract a lot of that index money and things like that, they'll actually probably hold up relatively well because people still want to be in equities. They just don't want to. Uh, be in things that are just, you know, super volatile, uh, you know, kind of for volatility's sake. And so I think stocks that have earnings uh, and that have growth, some, you know, prospects for growth, um, but that are larger cap and more liquid and don't depend on that uh, sentiment and liquidity so much uh, are going to be the one, the places to be. Uh, so not necessarily defensive, but not fully, uh, you know, small cap, high risk, uh, you know, stocks that, that did well uh, first half of last year. And how are you thinking about global stocks? Mostly we've talked about the United stocks in the U.S. You know, emerging markets didn't really do that well in 2021. Everyone was saying it's reflation and all the signals of reflation were there. You know, high commodity prices, high growth, yada, yada, yada. But in reflation, emerging markets tend to do well. The dollar tends to be weak. That was not the case in 2021. How are you thinking about emerging markets as well as China and Europe? And, you know, specifically, China's had a huge sell-off. So how are you sort of evaluating the risks and rewards there? So I'm still fairly negative on China just because uh, we haven't seen a turn in the uh, earnings estimate trends that we watched there for China. Uh, they're still much weaker than the rest of the world. 
Um, so it still looks like analysts are not through you know, bringing down their estimates for uh, for Chinese stocks. Um, so I would I would say that you know yeah that some some of the bad news has clearly been priced in that they've underperformed a lot, but I haven't seen a turn in the fundamentals or the top-down policy that would say okay things have really you know changed and therefore there's more of an all clear to get back in. Uh, China in particular, of course, uh, I guess starting sometime last year, had a, a you know policy change to go after some of the big uh, popular tech companies, uh, you know, education companies. Um, property companies to try to crack down on them, you know, have more control. Whatever their policy directives were, it hurt their earnings and you know made things worse for shareholders of those companies. So, uh, and of course, China is, I don't know, roughly maybe a third of the overall emerging markets universe by by weight. You know, it's a huge part of that. And so, when when China decided used to be to more, it used to be like forty like percent, but then it, it performed so poorly. Now it's only like thirty percent. <laughs> Right, exactly. So, uh, so having that much weight in China and having them be such a, a dominant influence, uh, the fact that they not only had the, the response to COVID that they did, but also the kind of policy-related uh, change, uh, going after certain companies and essentially, you know, telling them to you know, make less money, um, and they did. So, um, so that's had an effect on the overall emerging markets kind of universe. Um, other emerging markets have struggled as well. You know, Brazil's had a hard time. Uh, Turkey, of course, has you know been in the news a lot lately, uh, having a hard time. Um, so there's there's definitely been uh, pockets of uh, of other sources of weakness within emerging markets that are, you know, more uh, idiosyncratic or specific um, to those particular countries. Uh, the rest of emerging markets outside of China uh, are looking better than they were for sure. Um, so I would be if, if I had to get some exposure there, I would look for non-China EM uh, to, to, to kind of to, to look more closely at. Um, but again, as you start to see the you know the Fed and other central banks uh, no longer providing as much liquidity, um, that tends to be sort of a headwind for for emerging markets in general. Um, and not all of them benefit from higher commodity prices. Um, some of them are, are oil importers and have to pay the, you know higher prices for oil and natural gas, and so. Uh, I think you have to be much more selective now within EM um, rather than buying kind of the overall emerging markets asset class. So if you think that the risk appetite is starting to fade, liquidity is starting to fade, and you have you know the heavyweight of China still kind of putting their thumb on things, I think it's it's still risky to to, to dive into to emerging markets in general and China in particular uh, right now. I don't think it's been fully because China stocks, by my metrics, their forward earnings uh, PE ratios are not particularly cheap. They've underperformed, but they're not especially cheap relative to their historical norms. So you can't really say all the bad news is priced in because they're at really low multiples um, relative to where they normally trade. Uh, so I would, I would still stay, stay sort of cautious on those areas for now. And Europe? Uh, Europe uh, looks pretty good in terms of relative earnings revisions, sort of the, the relative fundamentals. It's a more cyclical uh, region. Um, so the the, uh, the more cyclical sectors are, are, are uh, more heavily weighted there. They don't have as big a tech sector in Europe. Um, so if you're heavily dependent on you know, technology to drive things, that's a that's a very U.S. you know kind of focused uh, you know bet to make. Uh, if you like tech, you kind of you have to like U.S. Um, if you, if you're a little more balanced on tech or you're more willing to take cyclical risk, then Europe actually looks pretty good. Um, and they're uh, they look like they probably won't be raising rates and, and tightening liquidity uh, quite as quickly or as aggressively as as the Fed will. Um, so you'll probably still have some of that uh, uh, policy support there as well. So I'm relatively uh, positive on Europe, more the Eurozone, continental Europe than the UK, because um, UK is still facing a lot of headwinds from Brexit and things like that, as well as, as COVID. 
Um, but I, I think uh, Europe is, is relatively, uh, looks relatively favorable in our work. Sam, a lot of viewers may be hearing your analysis and saying, hey, Jack, you had someone on a few weeks ago and, and they were saying the exact opposite thing, that the, the cyclical stocks is, is what you want to avoid. I think what's key to understand is, number one, obviously, it's great to have a diversity of views and, and analyze them on their, their own merits. But, but secondly, and most importantly, uh, your macro analysis that you just laid out is not the fundamental driver of your predictions and your research. What we have just talked about is really just a preview. What, let, now let's get into the, you know your bread and butter of your analysis, which is uh, Mare. Uh, your, uh, so what does what does Mare stand for? And and let's get into it. Sure. No, that's right. Yeah, a lot of the work uh, is is kind of driven from this this bottom up kind of set of indicators that I watch. And you're right, Mare is kind of the uh, the acronym uh, that I use. Uh, it's M A E R uh, is the acronym, and it stands for the Monitor of Analyst Earnings Revisions. And that was the original name of a, of a product that was developed many years ago, and that I uh, you know kept when I uh, kind of relaunched it in 2013, I guess. Um, and it's designed to track. Um, what analysts are doing in terms of their earnings estimates for individual companies, and then aggregate it to industries, uh, sectors, you know, countries and regions to get a feel for where the kind of bottom-up fundamental trends are um, for, uh, for 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 companies and and for for larger aggregates um, as a measure of you know where the fundamental momentum is essentially. So everyone can look at prices and see where price momentum is. But knowing where the fundamental momentum is, uh, where the actual earnings are uh, either supportive or not supportive, uh, really helps tie everything together and gives you a kind of a bottom-up view of things to go along with the traditional top-down macroeconomic uh, data that you might look at. Okay, so stocks have earnings, or they have negative earnings, and analysts, people who work at banks and other research shops who work for investors, essentially, they put out forecasts estimates of what a company's earnings are going to be. Oh, Apple is going to earn $1.50 per share. Oh, actually, but but they change. And they say, actually, I'm moving it from $1.50 to $1.60. Your framework, Mayor, Monitor of Analyst Esti- uh, 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 Earnings Revisions, says the fact that this analyst moved from $1.50 to $1.60, that's bullish. Why is that the case? Right, yeah, I know. I think that's the key is that um, yeah, analysts around the world uh, produce their estimates for uh, you know thousands of companies, and uh, you know publish them. And so that's that's what, what I'm you know sort of tracking here is what you know Wall Street and, and global uh, equity analysts are, are are doing with their estimates for uh, for for earnings for for all these companies. Uh, and, and here we're mostly looking at, you know what they're going to earn over the next 12 months. That's the primary kind of uh, you know time frame we're looking at. And uh, what we found, and what what most research over the years has found, is that the level of estimates are kind of where people are what they're predicting today is less relevant uh, for forecasting stock prices um, than the changes in the estimates, the revisions to or the uh, uh, the updates to the revisions, the news that that's that impounded in them. Uh, because what, what they're saying today is pretty much already priced into the stock. So the PE or whatever it is will reflect you know current earnings. But when they see some kind of new development, new news, uh, you know, Apple announces a new product or uh, there's a new regulatory change or something happens that causes their view of what the company is going to earn to to change. That's the piece that will move the stock price typically. So when an analyst raises their estimates or lowers their estimates for a company, and particularly when they do it as a group, uh, stock prices respond to that. You can you can show statistically that uh, stock prices respond to earnings estimate changes when they occur. So uh, stock investors do 
follow what analysts say about their, their earnings estimates and particularly those, those changes. And that's why the revisions are, are key, that the changes are what really move stock prices. And so uh, when you, you know, want to see what's going on for a stock or for a group of stocks, looking at which direction those changes, those estimates are moving, is really you know, kind of the crucial bit. And that's what Mayor is designed to, to track uh, kind of you know, in, a, in a structured and coherent manner uh, over time and, and amongst many stocks. And these analyst revisions, how forward looking are they, I should say, is, is that, you know, are they responding to news that has already happened for, I'm going to take a guess that in March, 2020, let's say on March 23rd, the bottom of the S&P 500, analysts were still downgrading their expectations when actually that was the ideal buying opportunity. So we, we've spoken earlier about this, how your, your model is uh, better at identifying whether a trend will continue than identifying that the trend will start because analysts, you know, can you speak to this also? Cause analysts, they're, they're not like traders who are, you know, they, they get a commission essentially on how much money they make. They, they're salaried people. And they're trying to keep their job. So if I, for, if I'm an analyst and I forecast that Amazon is going to make uh, $80 and I, it, it's way outside the norm and they only make $60, that would be look bad for me, look bad for my firm. So that, that might not be good for me. So you know, analysts typically, I have this, I, I have this uh, prejudice. I don't know whether it's true. And I have this sense that analysts sort of hug the index. So if it's you at another bank, you, you, you forecast 160. I'm like, I'm forecasting 161 and it may be 159. Sort of how do you, how do you think that these, uh, you know, human, human analysts who are forecasting and making their own mistakes, how is it that it results in, greater returns. Right, right. So you definitely have to take into account kind of, you know, where these analysts, you know, how they behave, what they're doing, what their incentives are um, when you kind of analyze this sort of data. And you're right. I mean, uh, analysts do have incentives to, um, you know, be close to say what the company guidance might be uh, or what their, uh, their, their own internal uh, bank or you know, brokerage firm is telling them. Uh, investment banking has a lot of overlaps with uh, analyst activity. So there's definitely a lot of things that can influence what they do. And that's, well, that's part of the reason why analyst ratings, the buy, hold, sell ratings that they issue are not part of my analysis per, uh, most of the time, um, because those tend to be much more kind of skewed and can be sort of political in some sense um, uh, and have a lot of you know incentive issues. Whereas the earnings estimates tend to be a little bit more uh, sensitive to what they really think, and they'll tend to move their earnings estimates before they change their, their buy-hold-sell rating, uh, which tends to move more slowly and kind of in a lag fashion. Now, even the earnings estimates themselves, analysts won't always be right there on the day that the stock bottoms or the things you know, are really turning, because they have to wait to see you know, if things are really actually changing and what they hear from the company, what they hear from other companies, you know, uh, and, and kind of you know, triangulate to find out what's really going on. Uh, before they go and start moving the numbers around. But um, I would say uh, that once they start to move in one direction, particularly if they do it as a group, they tend to be persistent in doing so. Um, and because there are fundamental trends in business, that, you know, once a company starts to do well and has a good product and people like it, you know, there's usually not just a one-off thing. There tends to be a, a trend in sort of more favorable, you know, business for that company or for that industry. And so analysts will will pick that up. And so that's why tracking what they do to the revisions, the revisions to the estimates are the most sensitive way of tracking how their view on things are, is evolving. Um, so even if they're not there on the, on the day of the market bottoms, uh, they'll at least tell you which direction things are going as the news you know, kind of filters through and, and, and changes. And so it'll keep you on a fundamental trend, say, um, 
and, and tell you when market movements might not be driven by fundamentals. Sometimes markets move and there's not an earnings-related reason for it, and a lot of times those movements will be reversed. Uh, it's short covering or it's some other kind of thing that's going on. And so knowing where the, what the analysts are doing uh, can be very helpful, both to see what is happening and kind of what's not happening. Mm. And what does Mayor tell you tell you now? First off, of the stocks in the Russell 3000, the stock that has the number one rating is very interesting. You, I, you told me yesterday, I never would have guessed it. It is Pfizer. Uh, let, let's use that as an example. Here. So now we're looking at the monitor of analyst earnings revisions for Pfizer, PFE. What, looking at the top chart, what are the blue bars? What are the red dotted line? And what is the black line? It's, and I should say to viewers, this is quite complicated. It took me like 20 tries to, to really understand what, 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 what's what. Right, right. Yeah, the idea with the mayor charts is to try to, you know, pack a lot of useful information into one one chart. Uh, so once you get used to looking at them, it's, it's very handy. But uh, the first time you look at it, it's a lot to, to take in. Um, and so, uh, so yeah. So don't try to. I would say don't worry too much about the the details. Um, but uh, the key thing uh, here is that you know we're showing a, a five year chart. Uh, the black line is the easiest to explain because it's just the relative performance of Pfizer versus the S and P five hundred. So if the black line is rising, that means Pfizer is outperforming the market. So uh, you can see recently uh, the, the latest, most recent movement in the black line shows Pfizer has outperformed. Um, now the red line is the other kind of key uh, uh, indicator for Mayor. That is uh, the uh, earnings estimate revisions trend, uh, and what we call revisions breadth. And all that is is the proportion of analysts that are raising estimates net of those lowering it. So you'll see on the chart um, in the top left corner there, it says there are 21 analysts currently that follow Pfizer, that submit estimates, uh, earnings estimates for Pfizer to, uh, to FactSet, which is where I uh, do, uh, get the underlying uh, source data. So uh, of those 21 estimates, um, some estimates, some analysts will have raised their estimate for earnings over the last uh, two or three months. Some will have lowered. Um, but if you take uh, the number that, that raised and you subtract the number that lowered, you get uh, 78% which is shown uh, next to it there uh, where it says REVBR. That's revisions breadth. And that means that net 78% of those 21 estimates analysts have raised their estimate over the last three months. And so that red dotted line is basically just a cumulative sum of those monthly revisions breadth figures. So if the red line is going up, that means there's more analysts raising than lowering, which is a good sign. And the steeper the line is, the bigger the percentage of analysts that are raising is, the, meaning the more uh, uh, the bigger uh, the agreement among analysts is uh, in terms of uh, positive versus negative. So what you want to see if you're bullish is the red line going up steeply uh, and then the black line typically will kind of follow along in terms of relative performance. Now the blue bars are the percentage change each month and how much the analysts have raised their estimates. So um, if you look at the numbers there at the top of the chart, they have raised their estimate for uh, 2020. Three, the, or 2022, I should say, uh, this year, uh, 22% in the last 30 days. That's a really big increase to $6.13 a share. Yeah, so high that it's not, the blue bars only goes up to 10%. So, so 23%, right, 23% right. is very high. That's literally off the scale, yeah. And particularly for a big company like Pfizer, um, that's very unusual to see a, a single calendar month where analysts have changed their estimate that much as a group. Uh, you know, a 20% move in a, in, a, in a calendar year estimate is, is big. Um, and so that little bracket 98 there in the very top right corner, that tells you that that, that uh, movement, the 22% movement in the uh, 
earnings in a month is 98th percentile for Pfizer over the last five years, meaning that's one of the biggest month-on-month -month moves that Pfizer's seen in, in many years. And actually, probably last month or the month prior might have been the only higher time. You can see those last three bars are all, you know, chopped off at the top. They're all about as big as they can get. So, um, so it's basically told you the analysts have dramatically raised their estimates for Pfizer over the last few months, both in terms of how many analysts have raised and how much they've raised. So those are the two main components of Mayra, how, my, how many analysts are raising estimates and how much they've raised them, the magnitude, and the breadth of the magnitude. Uh, and that's really the key driver there is that uh, the fundamentals are clearly getting better in terms of the underlying earnings story for Pfizer. Now, the black line has gone up. That means that the stock has responded. It's, it's outperforming the market. And so that, that green line in the middle is a rolling six-month price momentum indicator. Uh, now, it adjusts for the stock's beta size and style to try to, you know, kind of remove the effects of the, the macro market trends. Uh, but the important thing is that it's above zero and, and, and well above zero. So that tells you that the stock is as outperforming uh, on a risk-adjusted basis by a, a wide margin. So that's also strong. Price momentum tends to persist uh, in the intermediate term uh, as, you know, kind of a well-established, uh, you know, quantitative uh, result. So it's it's got strong earnings momentum. It's got strong price momentum. And in the bottom section there is the valuation, the relative valuation of Pfizer versus the U.S. large cap S&P 500 universe. So you can see that the, uh, the purple line there has been going down, which means the stock has been getting cheaper relative to the market. And so whereas at the beginning of 2019, for instance, Pfizer had a multiple, a forward PE multiple that was just about equal to the overall market, about one times the market multiple. Um, now it's actually slightly below half of the market multiple. Yeah. It, so it's maybe it's like 10 times nine. earnings. Yeah, like right. That. It's like. Yeah, nine times earnings. Which, so right now uh, Pfizer is trading at what, the, what analysts forecast uh Pfizer will earn in 2022, which is $6.13. It's like nine times that. So that is a, it's a pretty good deal for something that's, you know, typically it's riskier stocks like copper miners or, you know, real, real estate uh, financial stuff that, that trades at low multiples like that. So that, that this is why Pfizer is number one in your mayor ranking in terms of in, in, in the Russell 3000. Okay. So a little confusing, right. uh, for, for people who are seeing this the first time, but stick with us. Now let's look at one of the worst ranked stocks, which I think is interesting um, to a lot of people. It is Peloton. Peloton ranks as one of the worst stocks in the Thrustle 3000 in terms of Mare, Monitor of Analyst Earnings Revisions. And it has done extremely poorly. It was a, it was a darling of the early uh, uh, COVID boom when everyone was, was staying at home and you know wealthy professionals were buying these extremely ridiculous bikes. Um, but since then, it has suffered extreme drawdowns of you know, something like 70, 80%. So again, here we have the black line is the relative performance relative to the S&P 500. Uh, what, what, tell, us, tell us about what you're seeing on this chart. Right. So in some ways, yeah, this is sort of the opposite of, of what we saw in Pfizer, where if Pfizer had strong earnings revisions, uh, strong price momentum, and very cheap valuations, uh, Peloton is the opposite. Um, of the 30 analysts that cover Peloton, uh, more than about two thirds of them net are still cutting their estimate earnings estimates, um, and they're cutting them by significant amounts. Now, as you uh, kind of alluded to, Peloton is a money losing company, so its earnings estimates are, are negative. So they're they're forecast to to have, have uh, you know have losses both this year and next year. 
um, but the the, uh, the size of those losses has actually been increasing uh, in terms of our analyst forecast. They're expected to lose more money uh, now than they were a few months ago. So um, that means that valuation for a company that's losing money is kind of, you know, there's not much to say about it. Uh, the earnings are negative, so it's hard to, you can't really have a price earnings multiple for it. Uh, but the price momentum has certainly been extremely negative, as you mentioned. So um, and that actually started um, really almost a year ago. And so if you can see in the chart, the red line had been quite positive uh, up until you know, early 2021, uh, when you know, everyone was buying, buying the bikes and staying at home. And uh, uh, kind of early 2021, it's about the time the stock price peaked, but also about the time the earnings revisions peaked. So analysts started to become you know, much uh, less bullish on the earnings prospects for Peloton about a year ago. And so they started to get negative and then got progressively more negative. And then really the last uh, maybe six or seven months, it's been severely negative in terms of most of the analysts have been cutting estimates and they've been cutting by large amounts and the stock has been you know, underperforming. So there's been some, you know, company-specific things going on. You know, I'm not an expert in Peloton itself, uh, but certainly it's made headlines for some of its, uh, you know, its missteps and the fact that you know, people are just coming back from COVID and not buying uh, stay-at-home stuff quite as much. Um, it's really been a kind of a poster child for that uh, reversal. Um, but it's, it's maybe had some, some, some company-specific missteps as well. Um, but it's, uh, you know, it's got all the things that Pfizer doesn't in the sense of uh, having no earnings, but also having you know uh, increasingly large losses forecasted and and very weak price momentum, so um, so it tells you that uh, analysts are not through cutting estimates yet. Uh, there's been no change in the fundamentals that would tell you that even after this big decline, it's it's time to to pile in and buy because the stock is cheap or everyone's all done cutting their estimates. Uh, there's no sign of that yet. Okay, now let's look at the biggest stock in the world, Apple recently made a market cap of $3 trillion, a record. What are we seeing here? To me, the red line, it looks like people uh, analysts are upgrading. Uh, their, the breadth looks good. It looks like analysts are upgrading thing. And yet Apple ranks pretty much uh, smack in the middle in terms of mayor for the Russell 3000. Why is that the case? Right. So, yeah. So Apple um, does still have uh, net positive revisions. Uh, so the red line is still rising. But as you can kind of see from the red line there, the slope uh, has kind of come down some. So it was rising steeply up until a few months ago, and now it's rising at a much more moderate pace. And so you can see that the, the number that revisions breadth figure is 16%. So there is a majority of analysts that are raising estimates, but it's kind of a slimmer majority now than it was uh, during most of 2021. So that means that it's, it's not as decisive a uh, revisions trend as it used to be, or that some of the other companies in the, in the market right now are seeing. Uh, so if, if Pfizer had 70 or 80% of their analysts raising estimates, you know, Apple is, 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 is a much lower figure, still positive, but 16% is definitely not as strong as, uh, as some of the other stocks that we've seen, you can see right now. And the same thing for those blue bars. You can see there were really big blue bars, meaning big month-on-month -month changes in the consensus estimates. Um, uh, for much of last year, certainly the first half. And now the blue bars have gotten smaller, meaning that the changes, the, the earnings upgrades are just of smaller magnitude. They're, you know, half a percent, maybe 1%, as opposed to 2, 3, 4, 5% uh, last year uh, on a month-to-month -month basis. So, uh, so it's still positive, but less so than before and less so than some of the other companies in the market right now. Um, the price momentum is still pretty good. You know, it, it had a pause for a little while, and now it's taken off again. But you look at the multiple; it's at 1.3, 1.4 times the market multiple, which is higher than Apple normally trades 
over the last five years, it's been much more kind of around the market multiple or a little higher. So the uh, 28 to 30 times earnings it's trading at is, is a pretty good premium for Apple. It normally doesn't trade that high. So it's kind of expensive relative to where it normally trades and the revisions aren't as strong as they used to be or some other companies. So that kind of puts it in the middle. Uh, it's not, not the best, but it's also not, not negative. Um, so it, that's why it kind of ranks in the middle now. And Sam, how are you thinking about the earnings seasons that's approaching? We're filling on January 6th. It starts pretty soon, right? I know I know the bank starts re reporting uh, somewhere in like the 15th, the 16th. What is the activity looking like? So I think you'll start to see more activity uh, coming up and then starting in a couple of, in a week or two. Um, and that will drive more of the, the mayor activity. Um, but going into earnings, uh, estimates are still generally rising. They're still net positive overall, um, I would say. And so I think you're probably going to see, you know, generally good results for Q4, you know, 2021 um, overall. And it's been probably six quarters now in a row where you've had really strong uh, beat rates, meaning the, the uh, actual reported earnings come in uh, well ahead of what the analysts were expecting for that quarter, much more so even than, than normal. Um, and so uh, because they've, they've been more, you know, because as things have developed with COVID, analysts have kind of been catching up and been too conservative with their estimates and have now finally probably gotten a little bit more closer to what, where, where reality is. So I think you may not see quite the same beat rate, but it'll still be pretty positive. And then we'll have to see, do earnings estimates go up after that? I mean, do analysts see what the companies say and raise their estimates further for you know looking out into uh, the first, second, third quarters of this year? Yeah, so, so there's a gamesmanship. Analysts want to have a good relationship with the CEO, the investors. So they have a, a systematic pattern of lowballing by saying, Actually, they think it's going to 160, but they actually say it's 150. So when it 160 comes out, it's it's a beat. So the stock goes up because it's a good big of, of expectations. You're saying, and uh, correct me, uh, correct the, my data because I, I know what you're talking about, but I forget the exact percentage. But something like the historical beat rate is 70% because of that gamesmanship. But in 2021, it was something like 80, 85%, right? Somewhere around there? That's right. Yeah, the historical average, yeah, it's probably 65 to 70%. Uh, kind of as a typical beat rate uh, on a quarterly earnings, uh, you know, reporting cycle, um, because yeah, analysts kind of want to make sure that uh, you know that the companies can beat. Uh, but yeah, the last five or six quarters, it's been yeah, uh, you know, around eighty uh, percent, which is much higher than, than average, and uh, and is, is much more than just kind of that kind of gamesmanship would explain. Uh, so I think analysts really were surprised by the strength in earnings, and to some degree, I think in the companies themselves almost were were surprised. Um, by, by how things have turned out relative to what they might have expected, uh, given what was going on with, with COVID and everything else. Um, and again, that's kind of the historic nature of the, the stimulus that occurred and the vaccine development, all these things that have happened uh, faster than everybody expected them to. Yeah. And this is a really important point, which is that earnings in 2021 were phenomenal. Hmm. They, they were phenomenal. Like every, people who say, oh, the stock market's in a bubble, it's all manipulated, they may be right, for, but but setting that aside, the simple fact is that some there is uh, you know there is very strong, robust earnings growth. So much so that you know for for the S and P five hundred, which is you know began twenty twenty one in the in the beginning with a three a three digit, now it's at forty seven hundred or something. It, it made about I think two hundred five dollars for that. So P E multiples actually contracted over twenty twenty one. They did not expand because earnings themselves grew. Can you? Tell us about what analysts are forecasting for 2022 earnings, not specific stocks as we've gone in, but specifically the S&P 500. 
I've heard that analysts are forecasting earnings to grow at a pretty rapid click, but clip, not click, but but they expect earning multiples to contract. So their forward estimates of price is somewhat moderate. That's right. Yeah. Now, 2021 was definitely a year when earnings grew uh, somewhat faster than the stock prices did. Uh, so as, as well as stocks did, uh, earnings actually did even better. Um, and of course, that's partly, you know, recovery from the depressed levels of, of 2020. Um, but uh, estimates basically were rising all year, which is unusual. Normally, estimates come out, people, uh, analysts start the year with very optimistic kind of bullish estimates for the you know, following year. And then as reality kind of sets in, they, they trim them down to more realistic levels. Uh, in 2021, they actually were, were too conservative and kept having to raise numbers all through the year. Uh, which is which is very much not the typical pattern for a typical year. It is more typical in the very early stage coming out of a recession. Um, it was just even more so this you know or last year. Um, 2022 is looking more like probably a more typical year um, when earnings growth will be you know positive, but not you know double digit, no, not the sort of 20 30 percent increases that we saw uh, in 2021. So I think the S and P right now is forecast or analysts as a group are forecasting about. 9% earnings growth uh, for the index uh, for 2022 um, right now. And so if you think multiples will stay the same, that would imply that the market will be up around 9%. If you think multiples will contract, then you'd get something less than 9% um, you know, from, from, for the calendar year. Uh, if you think multiples could expand, then you might, you might get more. Um, so for, if we're around 20 times, uh, 21, 21 times earnings now, um, you can then you know, make your projection about where you think the, the, the P.E. ratio for the market will be at the end of next year. Um, the question you know, from my standpoint is, if they're projecting 9% growth now, does that number go up from here or does it, does it, you know, does it fade? Does it wind up being 6% or does it wind up being 12? Um, if, it winds, if it continues to rise some and winds up being 12, then you, you could still have a really good you know, market year even if multiples don't expand anymore. Sam, what does Mayor indicate about the favorability of specific sectors and industries? I know consumer staples, the sort of risk off sectors, consumer staples, healthcare is near your bottom and energies and financials remain at the top. Tell us why that's the case. Right. So for a while now, um, the traditionally defensive areas like, like consumer staples, utilities, and to some degree healthcare uh, have been sort of at the bottom of, of the uh, relative revisions ranking, meaning that the analysts have not been raising the estimates in those sectors to the same degree that they are in the uh, more cyclical or some of the you know uh, large cap growth sectors. Um, so technology has had good revisions. Uh, energy recently has had very good revisions, and of course a lot of that is driven by you know oil prices. Uh, financials have had strong revisions because uh, uh, mortgage rate mortgage activity has been very strong, and the markets have been very strong. So they've all had capital markets you know benefits from that. Uh, they've had, you know, growing credit demand recently. Um, so there's been some tailwinds for that sector. Um, some of the uh, uh, consumer areas have done well. A lot of retail spending has been going on, particularly, uh, you know, after all the stimulus we've had, uh, but not all of them. Um, and then things like industrials, uh, some of those kind of traditional cyclical sectors, some have been very strong, some have been very weak. Certainly things like airlines and travel-related uh, areas have been, uh, you know, very weak. Uh, due to COVID, but you know things like air freight and shipping have been very strong because everyone wants their packages, and there's a lot of uh, supply chain issues that have made you know bid up the price of being able to ship things. Um, so you've seen some divergences within certain sectors where you know where they're sort of split, 
Um, and then other sectors have been, you know, you know, fairly fairly strong overall. But you, you definitely do see some of those more cyclical areas uh, holding up well, relatively well uh, relative to the, the kind of traditionally defensive areas. They just they just they can't keep up. And some of them, like consumer staples, have had supply chain issues or cost input, you know, pressures from energy and things like that. Packaging costs those hurt some of the uh, you know consumer staples areas, things like that. And healthcare, of course, um, you know, if you make a, a new vaccine, that's great. But a lot of the elective surgeries and things like that, spending on healthcare that would have occurred uh, has not occurred because it's been diverted to uh, COVID and emergency rooms and things like that. So the healthcare sector, the private sector that that that, uh, uh, that we track, much of that has has actually not had good earnings revisions uh, and had relatively weak fundamentals because uh, a lot of the money's been diverted from where it would normally have been spent uh, towards COVID. Can you quickly talk about? The shipping stocks that are known as the marine industry, where you have companies that with their forward price to earnings ratios are something like two. So what seems like one of two things has to happen. Either those earnings revisions have to be wrong and they don't make money because shipping uh, bulk freight costs go way back down. They mean revert or the price has to go way up. Right, right. And that's I mean, those kind of companies are kind of the you know, textbook example of an extremely cyclical industry, uh, meaning some years they make lots of money and some years they lose lots of money uh, because they're, you know, very, uh, you know, long-term asset, you know, heavy things. It's hard to build a new ship very quickly and they tend to get booked a long time in advance. Right. And last year they just printed money, right? Right, right. So, I mean, everyone needed, you know, things shipped uh, as things recovered last year. And there just weren't enough ships to go around, particularly, uh, you know, coming from China to the U.S., things like that, certain shipping routes, uh, you know, demand for all kinds of both, you know, finished goods. Um, you know, getting a washing machine was hard, but also getting iron ore and things was hard. Um, the prices for those things went up, so people, you know, spent more on, on shipping them. Um, and so any anyone who has a, a bulk freighter uh, over the last year or so has seen huge demand. You've seen all the, you know, Baltic dry index and all those indicators of freight costs have skyrocketed, um, which if you're on the you know, side paying that, that's bad, uh, which is why some of those industrials and consumer areas have, have, have been hurt. But if you're the one uh, that, that's actually getting that, that money, then you're, you're making uh, huge profits. But I think most um, investors realize that you know, those kind of boom times are not going to last forever. So you don't, you're not going to price the stock as though those earnings are going to last you know, multiple years into the future. So it's great to have it for this year or next year, but you know five years from now there could be another oversupply uh, price you know go back down again, and you have to assume that earnings are going to be very cyclical and and, you know, and fall at some point in the future. So the uh, multiple on this year's earnings is very low, uh, but you know maybe on the long term future stream of earnings it might be actually more more moderate, assuming kind of mean reversion in the the pricing and the earnings for those stocks. So yeah, they look very cheap right now, and they've had very strong earnings revisions. Uh, and some of them have done very well, um, but you can't assume that's going to go on forever. I think that's how the market's pricing them right now. Right, and there's always that value trap thing where cyclical companies look the cheapest right before they're going to crash. Like if you look at Exxon Mobil, uh, you know, oil energy company's uh, price to earnings ratio, it looked the cheapest in 2007 because even though the stock had gone up a ton, earnings were just incredible. Uh, but obviously, it's been a very, very bad investment since then, um, you, you know, except for 2009 and 2014. But but yeah, viewers are interested. I think there's a, you know, there, we can put up a list of the shipping stocks that are at the top rated mare 
by by USAM, and then if they don't individual stocks, uh, I think there's a new ETF with the ticker great name uh, B O A T Boat. Sam, I want to ask you: analyst ability to identify whether a trend will continue is strong. That is the premise on which your mayor framework is based. What is their ability to identify whether a trend is going to end? Uh, you know, how do we know if they continue to upgrade earnings and uh, in particular industries? What what is their track record of actually that going true? For example, you know, going back to previous recessions, what what were analysts forecasting in two thousand and seven? Were, were they rosy, uh, and were those rosy expectations obviously ended up wrong, or were they correct in foreseeing a drastic slowdown in slowdown in profits? And it doesn't have to be just two thousand eight. You know, other areas where where a, a down a downturn was was two thousand twenty. Yeah, for example. Right. No, I think um, in aggregate overall, um, you know, analysts as a group are not going to pick, uh, you know, the tops and, and bottoms in the economic cycle, particularly when they happen, you know, more suddenly. Uh, like certainly 2020 was, you know, an obvious example of that. Um, now, earnings estimates going into, you know, in early 2020 actually weren't that bullish, meaning estimates have been sort of, you know, flat to down going into that because the economy was actually slowing in 2019, if you remember. Um, and the Fed was already cutting rates starting in the middle of 2019 because things had been sort of slowing down um, going into 2020. So before COVID ever showed up, there was a kind of a, a weakening pattern. But no, in, in 2007 and 2008, um, they responded to the news, uh, but they did not anticipate the, you know, the full economic cycle ahead of time. Um, and you know, analysts, you know, because they're focusing on individual companies, most of them are not really uh, sort of paid to forecast the macro economy overall, and they're you know they're only you know tasked with forecasting earnings for their you know small list of maybe you know ten or twenty or thirty companies in one specific industry typically. So you'll have an analyst that covers just semiconductor stocks and then doesn't and ignores all the other companies, and so that's why it's useful in some ways to look at all of them as an aggregate to see what's going on, even though you know the analysts themselves are not following all the stocks individually. Um, so yeah, at, at major turning points in the economy, uh, analysts will typically be kind of late to uh, to downgrade and then to upgrade. Uh, and so we certainly have to take that into account when you're looking at the pattern of earnings revisions in aggregate. So it tends to be much more of a relative uh, decision, meaning which sectors or which stocks at any given point in time have stronger or weaker revisions. That relative view tends to be a much better thing for analysts to be able to to add value for. And actually, even within a sector, if you ask an energy analyst where oil prices are going to be, he or she may not know any better than you or I would, but he can tell you whether this particular company is going to benefit more from higher oil prices than that company will because of their hedging practices or their, uh, you know, whatever they're doing at, at the company level. So if you want to know which energy stock to buy um, and which ones will have stronger revisions or weaker revisions, they're actually very good at that. And that's where the mayor tends to really do the best job is on a relative basis among a list of stocks, which ones are likely to, to outperform the other one, rather than kind of the overall macro where earnings going to be a year from now, uh, because that's just very hard to forecast because there's so many macro things that can change uh, in terms of policy and Fed and things like that, that, that analysts aren't really you know, paid to forecast and can't, can't do. Uh, as a rule, some, some some can, but uh, but overall, that's what they're they're really best at is kind of the relative view of which stocks uh, within their their space are going to do the best, and that's where the, the earnings revisions really shine. Yeah, yeah, and uh, how potent would you say earnings revisions are 
at this point in the cycle. I imagine there are times when the macro isn't really doing anything, pretty sleepy time in markets where earnings fundamentals and revisions are what matters the most. There are other times, like, like in March 2020, then it, the, the, the earnings revisions didn't play as a role because there was this huge gyration in the markets. Right now, I mean, like, what do you think the odds are, let's say, that consumer staples continue to have really bad earnings revisions and energy companies continue to have really good earnings revisions, but consumer staples outperforms energy because investors are rushing to risk off sectors and they're like, I want my Coca-Cola. I don't get, get me away with this copper mine, you know? Right, right. And that is very much um, what we've seen historically is that during periods of major macroeconomic changes, you know, big kind of panic periods or, you know, COVID when there's a major kind of global macro event that happens suddenly uh, and then the policy responses to it, um, analysts um, behavior, what they're doing with their estimates is going to just going to be less relevant to investors because if it's all risk off and I just want to get out of stocks and I'm panicking and I don't care what the earnings are, I just want to be in cash and be safe, then, yeah, it doesn't matter what the analyst says, you know, plus or minus a little bit on the earnings. And and during those times, you know, certainly in March, April 2020, most stocks had negative earnings revisions. You know, almost all the stocks had, you know, estimates that were being cut. Uh, same thing with, you know, September to December of, 20, of 2008. Um, you know, it looked like the world was ending and everyone was cutting estimates. Everyone was selling you know, everyone was waiting to see what the Fed or the federal government would do, and that's all that mattered. It was just pure risk on, risk off, and you know, subtle decisions about which sector and which stock are going to do relatively well didn't really matter for that time. Sorry, sorry, and that that was in between. The, the analysts started becoming really bearish. I'm going to take a guess after the market had topped, but before it had bottomed, right? Um, right, right, right. Yeah, they, they had been cutting estimates. Yeah, in 2008. But yeah, then they, they saw, you know, Lehman and all those things happen and then, you know, really cut estimates. And then once the, the Fed came to the rescue in early in 2019, then they, they did start to raise estimates. Um, but yeah, the, the market will tend to move faster than the analysts will when you get those major macro turning points. Um, and uh, and that's when, you know, analyst behavior and, and fundamentals in general, um, even valuations don't matter as much in those periods. So um, when you have those really intense kind of risk on risk off periods, um, that's when, uh, you know, relative performance of, of earnings revisions or, uh, you know, P ratios or anything else are just not going to matter as much because it's all, all of anyone, all investors care about for a little while is risk on risk off. And once that kind of passes, and usually they don't last that long, then you get back to sort of fundamentals again. So I would say, you know, 80 plus percent of the time, uh, you know, things like earnings revisions and fundamentals matter um, during those kind of panic periods or, or just after when it's all macro policy and all risk on risk off. And yeah, you have to just pay attention to the macro um, and, and not not focus as much on on the individual company stuff. And uh, let's, let's go over a few more companies that, you, you know, People may think, oh, the bloom is off the rose, let's say, on a home, home building company like Lennar. We, we had a huge real estate boom uh, shortly after after March 2020. Uh, people say, oh, that, that's mostly over. You know, the, the easy money's already been made in Lennar. Your model says, no, uh, Lennar is ranked number 10 uh, for, for mayor in the, in the Russell 3000. Uh, just t- tell us a little bit about, you know, wh- why you think that's the case and, and also... Um, you know, you, you as an analyst are more than your model. There are certain times when you say, my model is telling me this, 
I trust my model. The other times you're saying, my model is saying this, but in my experience, let's discount the model a little bit because something else is, is going on. So how, how are you thinking about these like really high beta you know, sectors, whether it's home builders, miners, as, as well as, you know, not to, not to mention the technology. So like, how are you, how are you thinking about this market? You know, that's right. Yeah. No, I mean, any, any sort of, you know, quantitative process, you know, is going to have uh, times when you have to kind of override a little bit, or at least be aware of what its limitations might be. Uh, there, you know, there are no silver bullets. Um, and certainly um, things like, uh, you know, earnings revisions where there can be, you know, other reasons why analysts do what they do, um, or, you know, macro cyclical effects that, they, that will override them. Um, and so, yeah, so, you know, home building is something that's been doing, you know, very, very well for a long time. And, you know, the earnings revisions for Lennar, I'm just looking at the chart at the moment, uh, have been basically in a straight line up for um, more than 18 months, uh, certainly since, yeah, uh, kind of early 2020. Um, and, and still are. I mean, the, the you know, estimates uh, are up, you know, eight and a half percent just in the last month uh, for, for that stock after having been up for a long time. Uh, the stock's done well, but, but not extraordinarily so. Uh, in, in recent months, and the multiple, uh, sort of a little bit like those uh, shipping companies we were talking about a minute ago, uh, has come way down. It's trading at something like five times earnings. Uh, again, because people assume, you know, this is the boom time. Uh, there's going to be a, a, a less boom or a bust time, you know, coming at some point. You can't assume that home builders are going to make as much money, uh, you know, over the long run as they are right now. Uh, and I think that's, that's very much the case. Now, does that mean you should sell them all right now? Not necessarily. If it's still got strong revisions, meaning the analysts are still finding reasons to raise their estimates, even after having raised them consistently for over a year, uh, that means there's still, you know, there's still untapped, you know, demand uh, in terms of homes and things that, that's going on, um, and so they still might, you know, have, have, have a tailwind there. So I would say it's probably too. Uh, you don't want to necessarily get off the train if it's still moving in the right direction, and that's that's a lot of what the. Uh, the mayor and the industry work is meant to do is to uh, keep keep you on trends that are, are in fact persistent, and then when things start to weaken and go from very strong to less strong to kind of neutral, that will get you tend to get you out of them, uh, rotate away from them before they really start to you know to to, to weaken s substantially. So you won't pick maybe the very top and the very bottom, but you should get the the, the most of the the move and will avoid the really big you know obvious kind of uh, uh, disasters. When things are, you know, go from bad to worse. Mm. Uh, Sam, tough question, you know, very hard to answer. I'm about to ask, but how do you think in Q1, uh, the the earnings seasons that is rapidly upon us, where companies report their Q4 earnings for 2021, how do you think the volatility will be? Do you think there'll be times when companies beat earnings by a massive amount, but they still crash because the the market just wants to crash. You know, do you think there are times when they have a huge miss, but everyone just loves a particular particular stock? Uh, and also, is, is that going to be a time when your models just just switch and switch and switch because so much new data is coming in? Also, what you know, what what if you speak to any analyst, like what what is their sort of emotional frame? Are are they ready to downgrade because they've been upgrading for so long, or are they they got a few more upgrades in them? You know. So I think there's still some upside to earnings uh, estimates potentially coming. It's just not going to be huge the way it was last year. And I think it'll be a little more differentiated. It's not all companies going up or seeing their estimates rise. I think it's going to be a lot more selective, even within sectors and within industries. So there'll be winners and losers. And that's actually a better environment for a process like Mayer, which, which tries to, to do that, uh, to try to isolate the winners from the losers, even within sectors and industries. Um, and it's actually been 
uh, doing better in the last, say, six months than it did, say, in the second quarter of 2020 um, uh, in terms of its ability to uh, relate to stock prices. Sam, I know you spend a lot more time uh, you know, hitting the data on, in rigorous analysis than you do in living in the, in the narratives like, like I do. But what is one narrative that you hear in financial markets that you think is the most wrong or has, has, the, has the least chance of becoming correct? Um, I think right now, one of the big things that you see in the news a lot and people talk about is, is the Fed and particularly the Fed's balance sheet. Uh, the, the QE story that all the money printing that the Fed has done over the years is the, the, the one true driver of why stocks have gone up and why, you know, stocks do what they do and assets do what they do. Um, I think the importance, I mean, the importance of the Fed's balance sheet and the QE process, you know, recently, you know, now and looking forward is less than what people have assumed historically. And even going back to 2008, when it all really started, I think the importance has been overstated. I think it's an important signaling device. It tells you what the Fed is thinking and what they intend to do, but it does not directly drive um, the returns on a, on a kind of a, on a mechanical basis, or that's not where the money is really coming from, uh, per se. Uh, I think it affects the banking system and the reserves in the banking system, uh, which is important, but not the main driver of what Apple's doing or you know what you know companies in general are, are earning or how investors behave overall. Uh, I think fiscal policy is much more important now than than monetary policy because we're kind of stuck in low rates and uh, you know th th there's there's plenty of reserves in the banking system right now and probably will be for a while. So even if the Fed does stop buying bonds and even reduces its balance sheet for a while, that will get a lot of play. And it's, it's a big talking point. I don't think it's really going to matter for the fundamentals that much. Well, Sam, it's been great having you uh, on Forward Guides. Been very generous with your time as well as your insights. Final question for you is, what do you think about bond yields, whether it's the 10-year or the 30-year growth might be slowing, and yet inflation, which is itself slowing, remains stubbornly high. Uh, you know, what's your outlook on, 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 let's say, the 10 year or the 30 year U.S. Treasury? Yeah, my general longer term view is that the yield probably won't go up that high, meaning that uh, you know, the prospect of a you know, 5 percent yield on the 10 years or 30 years is, is pretty remote. Um, I certainly think the yields could back up some from where they are now. But uh, I think the, the, the general view in the markets and, and that I tend to agree with is that the Fed's kind of terminal interest rate, say, two years from now, is probably going to be 2% or less. Um, it's probably not going to be much above that. So if you don't think that short-term rates in the Fed are ever going to push rates up much above you know, maybe 1.5% to 2%, it's hard to make the argument that 10- or 30-year rates are going to be a lot higher than that. Um, and also don't think that you know once we get past this kind of phase of, of higher inflation and supply chains and stimulus, when we get back, say, you know, in 2023, 2024, the economy is probably going to be slower. Uh, inflation will come back down. Those disinflationary forces that were in place for years and years up until 2020 are going to kind of come back. Um, you know, demographics and debt and technology, all those things that, it, you know, are long-term trends will reassert themselves eventually. Um, I think those are all going to keep uh, both the Fed and interest rates in general from going up too high uh, over the longer term. So I think, yeah, rates could back up a little bit further from here, but I don't, I'm not a, a massive bond bear uh, on, on long-term rates um, because I don't think the economy can handle them. And I don't think the Fed is going to push things, you know, that far. 
so I, I would say, you know, maybe a little higher than here, but not a lot higher. It's interesting you said, oh, I'm not a big Bond bear. You didn't even talk about the other case, which, which is Bond bull. You don't, so you don't think yields are going right. to go down either? Um, not right now, no. I, I think you know, the fact that the Fed seems to be committed to raising rates uh, for a little while means that it's going to be hard for yields to go down a lot, um, unless you get to the point where people think the Fed has made a, fo- a policy mistake and over-tightened. Uh, we're probably a little ways away from that yet. Um, that would be a, a 2023-24 problem, probably. Um, so for right now, I think yields you know, maybe stay in the general broad range they've been in or bump up, bump up a little higher. Um, but I don't think uh, uh, they're going to go skyrocketing. But yeah, I don't think they're going to come down a lot, um, given I think risk assets will probably hold up. So there won't be a huge shift out of stocks and into bonds, which would cause rates to come down. And I don't think the Fed's going to uh, make bond yields go down uh, itself. So uh, I think it'll be, but uh, I think there's still a lot of demand globally for fixed income. Um, people want, you know, safe interest. And so, you know, they're still going to grab at it whenever they can find it. And U.S. rates are still higher than, uh, you know, Europe and Japan, most of the developed rates. So there'll be, you know, demand for, for U.S. assets uh, on an interest rate basis uh, because the Fed will be ahead of the, the other country's curve in terms of raising rates. Um, so I think those will all kind of keep the balance of, uh, of longer term rates uh, where, kind of where they are. Mm-hmm. The balance. Well, Sam Burns of Mill Street Research, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. 